Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode. Happy to bring you guys this episode. I had the pleasure of having Mr. Paul Cousin on, uh, I think it was about a month ago. He, uh, he stopped through with his wife the first time on their way out to a wedding in Colorado. And then they came back, he came back through on his own and we hung out, had a good time. Then he just recently came and stayed a week. Um, he was helping Rich get uh, get a property set up until the rain and everything. But big shout out to Paul. Paul, thank you so much for coming out. Super cool guy. On this episode, we talk a lot about um, just kind of Paul's journey into um, permaculture and growing your own stuff or whatever it is. We talk about a story. He's really into foraging mushrooms. Uh, used to be really into orchids, which is really fascinating as well. So... Hope you guys enjoy this episode. But before we get started, um, go to naturesimagefarm.com. Right now, uh, Greg Burns and the Burns Farmstead have meat birds for sale. So if you're in Ohio, go there, check it out. You could get some Cornish Cross chickens, which we actually just worked up yesterday. Um, and then you could also put down a deposit for some turkeys. So there might be some turkeys ready. And uh, yours truly will help. Uh, eviscerate your birds. It's kind of cool. Have a good time. Also, if you're into nursery stock, go to newfarmsupply.com with code word sample. You can actually save 10% off anything and get free shipping as well. Um, so that's newfarmsupply.com. If you also go to versaland.tv, there's a great pawpaw course, which you will be able to find. And I also mention... Um, it's for free, and I also mentioned that at the end of this podcast. And um, also, if you guys like Audible books, currently I'm listening to The Monkey Wrench Gang by Edward Abbey. Um, so if you go to audibletrial.com forward slash sample hour, you can start a new account and download a book for free on me. What a great deal. So check that out as well. And then finally, last but not least, if you guys are into urban farming like I am and you want to get a great reference point for a course, highly recommend ProfitableUrbanFarming.com. There will be a link in the show notes um, where you could either get $100 off by getting the course through me or you can sign up for the payment plan. And so not only do you get this vast amount of knowledge, but you also support the show because it is an affiliate. And then if you guys decide, you know what, I don't want meat birds, I don't want nursery stock, I don't care about urban farming, but I like the sample hour and you just want to support the sample hour, you can become a patron. Um, so this podcast is actually being released a day before on Patreon, and there's a lot more coming down the pike. So I just recently, um, what a weird saying, coming down the pike, or maybe it's coming down the pipe, I don't know. I need to stop saying that, though, because that's a silly saying. Um, I just uh, recently hung out with Hunter Motts, and uh, we did some mixed mental arts get-together. So I drove up to Detroit. We did a live podcast with the Detroit MMA crowd, and there was actually a cool guy from London, Ontario as well. And then we did a car podcast, which is going to be the first half will be on the sample hour normal feed, and then the full episode will be on Patreon only. And then we did a Columbus, Ohio meetup, and 
did another p- car podcast the next day. So pretty excited. Pretty soon, uh, Brett Vinat and I will be doing something similar for School Sucks for the School Sucks Project or podcast and my show as well. Sorry, guys. A cat is trying to get on my keyboard, and I don't have a water bottle to spray him. So, Tom, get out of here. Come on, dude. Anyways, sorry about that, guys. Cats going everywhere because I'm a cat, crazy cat person. Um, and then uh, also, I want to let you guys know, so uh, right now, Brett Vinat and Thaddeus Russell, they're doing a Renegade University event. Um, there's still some spots open. It's going to be in L.A. Uh, the weekend of November 10th. So I will be attending. I'm kind of excited about it. So so will Nathan Frazier, who have an episode coming out with him as soon as well. So it should be a pretty good time. Um, and, yeah, so that's, that's pretty much all I got, guys. Um, nothing else. Look forward to bringing you more episodes soon. Oh, there's a live School Sucks event. It's going to kind of be a sample hour School Sucks event coming up in October at the Pins Mechanical Company. So it's going to be October, let's see here, October uh, 20, it's going to be Monday, October 23rd. So 7, 7.30 p.m. at the Pins Mechanical Company. Hope you guys can make it if you're in the Ohio, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Kentucky, Indiana area. So if you're in my part of, you're in my part of the country. You guys can hopefully come. But anyways, I hope you guys enjoy this episode. I had a lot of fun talking to Paul Kusan. Um, if you guys want to get in touch with Paul, Paul says how. You can always email me, and I'll get you in touch with Paul as well. With that being said, guys, I hope you enjoy this show. Porchcast, guys. I'm uh, really happy with the porch. Actually, I'm really happy with the way the podcast has been evolving because I haven't put in a lot of effort and I feel like the podcast has been getting better because it's people coming here to visit and hang out and they're all super cool people. Uh, I think actually Rich and I started the Porchcast because um, it was like the first podcast we did together. I was like, let's do it on the porch, Rich. Let's go sit on the porch and taking the neighborhood and everything else like that. And uh, so we are honored today to have one of Rich's good friends here with us all the way from Connecticut on your way back from Colorado. The second time you came out here, um, you're coming back on your way out. Mr. Paul, it's Cawson. Cousin. Paul Cousin. Rhymes with Tucson. Paul Cousin. Now, Paul um, also trained. It's so weird. I like to say trained because I always think of permaculture like black belts. But uh, you have a PDC. You don't have a PDC from Eric, but you've worked a lot with Eric Tonesmeyer. Who'd you get your PDC from? I got it uh, with Ben Falk last summer, Ben Falk, yeah. So you got a a PDC from Ben Falk. Um, You're into mushroom foraging. You were really big into orchids for how many years? Oh, about 20 years now. 20 years. You 20 still, years. I still you, have a few. You still have a few. Yeah, I have a few that I have on the 
in the window of my sliding glass doors. Yeah, and we'll get into orchid growing too because that's a fascinating, like the flower business. A lot of people don't talk about, and I think for for us in our little uh, pocket of thought is uh, we're all about edible landscapes and everything else like that. And and actually, it was fun the first day you guys came out here. We went to dinner. Um, you and the wife had come out, and Rich, you and I went to dinner. And uh, then we went to a super secret foraging spot, and I showed you the abundance of ramps that are there. And then you also showed me that, hey, you also have wild ginger here, which I had no idea. Yeah, right. And then we found some pawpaws, too. It was a good time. But, uh, yeah, so, you know, you and Rich, so how do you and, so how do you and Rich know each other? Hey, Rich, do you want to say hi to everyone? Hi, everyone. Yeah. <laughs> well, Rich and I first met when we went to a screening at Yale for the movie Inhabit. Yeah. And Costas, the producer, was there. Yeah. And so Rich was sitting at the end of the row. So his and, name is Costas. Yeah, Costas. Costacarius, is that Costa. how you pronounce it? I don't know. I thought it was yeah. Costa. He's Greek, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, Costacarius, yeah. It's one of those hard it. names that you can't say, and then you look at him, and you're like, oh, yeah. it doesn't look like he'd have a weird yeah. name like that. Yeah, he must be it? Greek. And it was, Rich had just gotten back from PV3. PV2. Two. Two. PV2, yeah. yeah. and so we, we we were talking to Costas and a gentleman named Sven Peel, who's a permaculture designer down. He has a business down in Connecticut, and he's we were top, all meeting. He's, he's top secret too, right? With his yeah. foraging as well. Yeah, he doesn't let anybody know where. I was happy that you could something. take a picture, a snapshot of all the ramp flowers, yeah. or a snapshot, so maybe make him a little bit jealous. I yeah. was, I was actually, I've never met you, Sven, but I hope I made you jealous. Yeah. Did you take pictures just for Sven? Yeah, I did. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Just to say, hey, Sven, I know where these are. You don't. But I can't post them online till I scrub the metadata off of them. Yeah, we have to scrub the metadata uh, because the person. So Joel Cameron Harris would murder me in my sleep if anyone found out about that forging spot. And so he'll probably listen to this and be like, you took somebody to the spot, dude. Well, so, I'm totally aware of the I figured out the state. rights. Yeah, I figured founding. I figured eight hours away is good enough. And um and actually the fact that you told me that there's wild ginger there, which Joel may have already known, but quite honestly, it was something that I said, dude, we only hit this up in the spring and the fall. Yeah. We don't come here in the summertime. Yeah. Well we found the we found the pawpaws. I says, you know, oh, do you know you have wild ginger here? Yeah. Through. And he says, No. Well, I says, Well, these bushes are pawpaws. Yeah. And they were small trees. And I says, well, if we can find an area where the canopy has been knocked down, then we'll probably find pawpaws, which are understory trees that don't have that many flowers when they're in the total shade. We'll find some that are have fruit on them. And we did. We walked a little bit farther and found a clearing. And sure enough, there was pawpaws with fruit on them. Yeah, that was it was pretty cool. Um, and then the last week I went across the river a different spot it's not even like i mean it's it's a very public park i think people are just completely oblivious and, and also too it's illegal to forge technically in public parks and all that but that's why i'm not going to say the park or anything like that but, but that's on the other side of the river it's on the other side of the river yeah and i found uh i found a lot more pawpaws like there was tons of fruit on that side that's interesting too because i was at uh shane mcclellan's land it's a shane he bought onto this land 
where it was like multiple people bought. It used to just be one person's land and then they built lots out of them. And the lots are still like, you know, like six, seven, acre lots. And, um, Shane's neighbor had all these ramps and there was zero ramps in his whole lot. I go, yeah, dude, there's ramps all over there. Like, but they had not carried over. It was pretty funny. (laughs) Yeah. It's very interesting about the pawpaws. I don't know if everyone knows what they are or, or, how they're spread or anything like that, but they're the largest American fruit, and they're the only one in the genus which isn't a tropical fruit. Hmm. They have seeds that look like watermelon seeds, only they're about an inch to an inch and a half long, and there's no animal that could spread those seeds around like squirrels do with acorns and walnuts and other nuts. Yeah, And they theorize that the only animals that could move these seeds around would be woolly mammoths, giant mastodons, and uh, tree sloths, sloths, tree sloths, and other big animals that, that disappeared no about 5,000 yeah. years ago. It's interesting, too, because then you look at uh, Dan Flores' book, uh, American Serengeti, where he talks all about like the animals of the American Serengeti. And it's, it's just interesting about all these cool old species that used to be native to the United States that no longer exist. And the other one that happens is the Osage. I think that's how you pronounce it. Orange. Yeah. There's another fruit, yeah. the Osage orange. Um, and these animals used to move these things around. Well, it comes to find out that the Native Americans were some of the biggest gardeners. Yeah. They would move plants around and plant, um, say, the pawpaws. And they would spread them out so that they would have more fruit because all the fruit had been wiped. All these trees had been wiped out with the ice age all the way down to whatever is the Mason Dixon line or wherever that line is where the glaciers came down. And so something had to spread these fruits and the American Indians used the pawpaws. They would dehydrate them and dry them and make all kinds of things with them. And that was a big staple of their diet. Yeah. It's, and so for anybody that's Canadian and listening, um, we call First Nations people American Indians. You know, they call them, they say First Nations. I remember the first time I talked to a Canadian, they kept saying, you know, First Nations. I'm like, what the hell are you talking yeah. about? First Nations. Sorry, I'm just drewing up the conversation yeah. there, but I think. Yeah, Native Americans, Indigenous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, you kind of get caught sometimes. Yeah. Uh, since I'm, I'm 63 years old, I sometimes. Go back to what we used to say, American Indians. I mean, I always know. preferred feather, not a dot. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, I'm just I, I'm, hey, I'm a, I am American Indian, so I feel like it's okay. But that's what every American claims too, especially if you're in Appalachia. But I know for a fact. Um, no, I mean, yeah, I, th- I think it's interesting too, and it was funny because you, you talked about the other thing too, how big a gardeners the Native Americans were. And um, that was something that a lot of people don't talk about. And that uh, that book, uh, humble the humble beast, the story about the the, the pig. Um, pigs were like one of the biggest weapons against Native Americans that nobody talks about because when American when settlers first came, they would just let their pigs run wild and they would brand them and then they'd go hunt down their own pigs. But the Native Americans would just kind of garden and they'd leave like these forest gardens and they would know where to go and get stuff. And then the pigs would go and find their gardens and root up all their vegetables and eat all their food. And it, it's like yeah. the unknown weapon that was like a, 
a weapon against the Native Americans that they didn't even, the settlers didn't even realize it was a weapon. It was just them trying to survive on their own. Yeah, the, the hog is kind of a living rototilla. My nephew has some on his land, and that's what he does to clear the land. It's where the poison ivy and everything to to convert it to doing some uh, gardening or forest gardening or whatever. You get all the understory out of the way. He just lets the pigs loose and they go through and just wipe everything out. Yeah. So how did, uh, so let's go way back. Cause we, we started, we were talking about, um, the foraging trip, but let's go back. We, we touched on this the other night after I was pretty exhausted and we went on that long hike in the hot, humid heat and, uh, we had a few beers in us and, um, but so let's go back. So, cause I think you have a fascinating story about when you started to nerd out on plants and it's, it was funny because, uh, it's just always cool. Like I get so excited to talk about people about plants because I know a lot less about them than you and Rich, but it's still cool. Like I, I seem to stumble on cool shit without even realizing that I have. And so I like to share it with people like you and Rich who really appreciate it. And, um, but so, so let's go way back. So what made you start wanting to get like nerd out? Like let's do like a brief history of, of Paul and, and how you turned into this, you know, this plant, this man of, of a lot of plant knowledge who has a PDC from Ben Falk. You go to Eric's all the time and volunteer um, once a month, right? So Yeah, yeah. So I go back to when I was a teenager. I used to, I was really interested in wild plants and animals and anything like that. I was a snake guy, a, a reptile guy, and I used to take my field guide and sit in meadows and just try to identify plants. I wanted to be a microbiologist or a biologist or a marine botanist or something like that. I always had an interest in plants and biology. And when I first moved out of my own parents' house, I had a minister's wife give me all the plants that she had, house plants, when she moved back to Mobile, Alabama. And that just started it. I just have always had plants ever since I was like 18 or 19 is old growing in the house. Yeah, I remember my mom always had house plants. I never understood it because I'm like, what do we have these things here for? Like, why are they here? You know, and I, I, I moved to Texas and I had bought a new house and I started landscaping with the normal things like azaleas and down there, uh, different plants like crepe myrtles, yeah, and things like that. And I started really getting into the plants themselves. I, I started wanting to know more about them. And then I started reading about um, organic gardening. And I moved back to, at uh, that time, Massachusetts. And, and how many years saw, ago is, how many years ago we're is talking, we're talking, uh We're talking 30 years ago. Okay. 35 years ago. So you, you got really into houseplants. And what, what were your favorite houseplants? And the, you know, I, I went kinda, through I kind of want to go down that rabbit hole because, like, I was kind of like, I didn't want to sound like I was just some shitty ungrateful kid because there, there probably are a ton of benefits to houseplants. Right. And I, I heard that it oxygenates the room and all that stuff. I don't really know. Yeah, they, are, they, they do. They act as a filter in the air. They take a lot of the pollutants out of the air, formaldehyde. Did you hear that, Rich? They, they, <laughs> they take that out because, you know, you know, your sheetrock and things like that and your paint do exude formaldehyde. Those are the benefits, which I really didn't know at the time. I was just interested in plants. And I went through different phases where I had like Sansevierias and, 
and some of the cactus and things like that. And I had moved on to like scented geranium, which was a big thing. And I had a lot of those. And I started getting into herbs outside because we moved into a rental and I started creating gardens and started my first stone walls and stone paths. And I would plant all kinds of herbs. And I really hadn't gotten into it, but I was getting into organic gardening. I was well, reading so organic like gardening. Stone, stone walls and stone paths. So for the lay person, like what? What do you mean by that? Like just just getting into having that, building that, like building that for you know found and so, rock. So this was all like a hobby. So you'd find you'd find like certain stone and you'd want to make paths out of it. Right. You know, I to section off or to level make um raised beds yeah. or terracing. I started doing a little terracing. So you do like the rock terracing that you'll see kind of like the old school style terracing that like Right, that. right. And my whole actually my whole yard now not now on one side is being terraced with, I make all kinds of stone walls that have terraces because I can't really do swales or things like that because it's too steep of a berm. That's what I have inside of my house is a big berm. And, uh, I've just progressed through the years doing that. But I, so, so first it was house plants. Then you were like, you know what, let's see what happens when we take these plants and put them outside. And then you started to get more into like the land and how everything it's like it's it's interesting because you go from a very controlled environment, which is indoors. Well, it's not very controlled; it's a lot more controlled than nature. And and then you 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 start just basically like what what kind of was the driving force from one thing to another? Was it just like oh, this stuff's really cool? And you just would naturally jump because it's not like back then you had YouTube where it's automatically giving you stuff to look into. Oh, check out this rabbit hole. Yeah, that's right. Like you had to find this stuff out on your own. Yeah, I had organic gardening, organic life, whatever the magazine was called from Ordale, and I'd look at that. And I just started having, you know, better homes and garden or anything like that. And I started looking at things. Oh, I can do that. So you, when it just, felt good, you know, getting my yeah. fingers into the dirt and working with a stone, it 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 felt right. So would you just be at like a, a store and you'd see these magazines and you're like, oh, this looks cool. Right. Yeah, and I'd because look you're at like, them. let me look at something about plants or houseplants. Let me see if I can find something about that. Right. And then that was like a doorway for you back then. Right. It was. There, there used was. to be ads in the back of some of those magazines for mushroom lots and, and you know kits on getting started back in the early days. Like, I, I remember those magazines. They were really great. But I, I really, I wasn't really into mushrooms at that time. Yeah, I, I, I was in Bill Wicker, Mass, and as I say, we we were renovating a house, and uh, we were renting a house, and I just started doing this. And previously, I had owned a house in Lowell, and we went through the big crash of whatever it was nineteen whatever, uh, and the whole housing market, so we lost the house. But at that house, we had mulberries, and I never knew what a mulberry was. I grew in the city. I grew up in Malden, Mass. In the city, yeah, I didn't know what what a mulberry was, and there was these trees with these berries, and you could eat them. Yeah, you know, so the, that kind of tainted. Did you, did you really think back then, like, oh, these birds just keep shitting purple all over my car? Yeah, well, I didn't even it didn't bother me. That never bothered me. Yeah, because I was eating them too, <laughs> <laughs> and they were really good. The birds like them. I must so, like them. So, too. did you grow up eating mulberry, or was it something? That new? was the first time I had ever had them. So, you, in Lowell, did, before I had. We started renting because we had to let the house go because it went from a value of one hundred thirty thousand to forty five. Okay, so so was it like a 
So was the mulberry like the first tree that made you start paying more attention to trees? It was. So it you was. had it. So you, you had a mulberry. Was it in your yard already? And you're like, oh man. Yeah, it was just good. growing. It was growing with sumacs. It was just growing as a weed. Yeah, just like here. Like the, right, the, like around your like the places. tree we just the male one that we cut down. Yeah, because, well, the, uh, our out back in your alleyway there. Yeah, you know that's that that's what it was. It was just sumacs and these mulberries. And, oh, cool! But then we moved to a rental property, and when my wife had an accident taking the garbage out, she broke her ankle and had to have three pins in them, and broke her foot and then broke her finger all at the same time. I got laid off from my let go from my job because I was in a small printing shop and they let me go a week, you know, a month later that happened on the day before thank Halloween. So we moved to Connecticut. And is that when you started the landscape business? Uh, no. Um, I never had a real land. I never had a landscape business. Actually, Okay. Was it just, you got into just landscaping? Yeah. When, we moved down. It took us about three years, and I did work for my brother doing fire protection, uh, sprinkler systems, automatic sprinkler systems, and things like that in buildings. I I just kept going, getting in more interested in plants. And when we bought our first house. This is in uh, Lowell? Where you no, this the... will be down in Connecticut now. Oh, my apologies. I don't, down, know, I, know I don't know the uh, I'm kind of stream towns. of consciousness there. Not getting no, all you're of fine. That. You're fine. I'll, I'll sort yeah. it out after yeah. us. We so, moved to Connecticut. So you you're, you're, you get laid off. Your wife gets the injury. You're like, okay, we're moving back to Connecticut. You've been doing all these things. You discovered you had mulberry trees. You're like, man, these are delicious. How cool is this? You go from house plants to wanting to do stone paths and stone terracing. And, and then you move back to Connecticut. Yeah, we moved to Connecticut. I'm originally from Alden, so we didn't move back. We yeah, yeah. moved to Connecticut. And we kicked around in rental properties for about three years and then i bought my bought my house that i have now and it was just dull i mean i had this hill on the side of my driveway that was a berm and all the soil was being washed down yeah. whenever it rained it washed down the driveway so it says well i better put something there to stop them from eroding the, the hill and so i started building stone walls i started collecting stone everywhere so you would, it was just a hobby. You'd go somewhere and you'd think the stone looked cool. And you're like, I'm going to put this in the berm. Right. I put this on the stone wall. And then I started, I would collect walls. I'd always been interested in rocks anyways as a hobby as far as uh, I was a rock hound collecting rocks and things like that. I had a collection. So that was as a kid. As a kid. And I had started uh, collecting again local places, you know, quartz crystals and things like that. And so I started building these rock walls and then I started just finding them all over the place and I'd bring them home and I'd build stone walls and then I'd start planting, I'd start terracing. And what I was doing, I was having great diversity. I was planting all kinds of different things. But at that time, I still was planting ornamentals. I wasn't planting strictly edibles or anything like that. And then were you helping other friends and stuff that like wanted to do, would people come to you and say, hey, Paul, I have this question. I want to make my yard look a certain way. Would you go help them just for fun? Like, yeah, well, I did a lot of with plants. It became a, I got my master gardener in Connecticut. What is and two, fear here? Sure. In 2001, um, because I had really gotten into plants and my sister-in-law, I had moved to town from Newfoundland with my brother. He had been a service up there and he tried to make a living up there and he came down here. 
Well, she was really into herbs. And so we started going, actually salvaging people's gardens. If people were ready to tear a garden out and put a lawn in or something like that, we'd go and take it out for them. Oh, that's and we'd cool. inherit all the plants and we'd start planting it around the property. And she, she and I both have done that. And it slowly evolved. So I was putting in more natives. Still hadn't gotten really into edibles. I had a good vegetable garden. I had a big vegetable garden. But while I had been at a previous property, I started getting into orchids. And in the previous property before I had bought the house, I had started collecting orchids. I bought one, and I bought three, and then I bought five. And I, I, I had all these orchids growing in my bathroom because they're the only window that I had the light. It was a southern window, so I had all these plants in there. And then it became too much for the bathroom. It was overwhelming the bathroom. And I ended up building a structure in my dining room that was about eight feet long, six feet high, and four feet wide. And I put tables in there on top of this pan that I had a, a sheet metal guy make that makes duck works for HVAC. They owe me a favor. And he made a pan for the floor so I could put a table in it and a smaller pan for on top of the table. Then I had a third table on top and I drilled holes so that the when I went in there, the water would drain from um, tray to tray, level to level, and then into a bucket. And I built an enclosure out of wood and plastic um, polyethylene and I was able to spray the orchids in there without getting anything wet. And so, um, so for people that don't really know a lot about orchids, which I think is probably most listeners of my show, but I could be way wrong. But I, I don't know much about orchids. The most, so the first time I was introduced to orchids was that movie adaptation, which was pretty much an adaptation of that lady's book that was just about orchids. And they wanted him to make a movie out of it, so he turned it into this crazy comedy. And he had like root base, but it was interesting because it was like they're like the most expensive flowers and Yeah, well that that's we keep going off but this is a tangent we can go off on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I wanna I wanna to talk about, about I wanna talk about the orchids. And we don't yeah. you did say if, if you went into detail about orchids, it would what'd you say it'd take two hours Yeah, it's a, to it's a story because orchids number one. When I I'm asked how to grow an orchid, I'd say how do you grow a tree? Because the orchid is the largest flowering plant group besides a compositae, which is the daisies and things like that. Um, there's, there's so many, 35, 40,000 varieties. Yeah. And so it's, everybody that talks about orchids so is if, thinking about the Phalaenopsis that they buy at the Stop and Shop or the Kroger's or whatever grocery store they go to. That's That's what they think of as the orchids, they don't realize there's so many different varieties. Yeah, so like some of the varieties you had, I think I, I asked you how much would it cost if I had in like a a red Dixie cup, like I had that basil in, like just a red cup yeah. that people I, use. I, I've had orchids that were growing in pots the size of shot glasses that cost like $50, $75. Yeah. Or they could cost even more because um, everybody wants that treasure, that exotic that one that no one else has, the rarest of the rare. And so everyone was striving for this. Now, the thing about orchids that makes them as expensive as they are, even for the store-bought ones, which are $20, $25 for this houseplant, 
is that their pollen and seeds have been reversed. Where pollen and regular plants is like dust, in most orchids, they're sacks of pollinia. They're, they're a bunch of pollen together in, in a membrane. And they're transferred by insects or, oh, they can be beetles and stuff like that, flies. Um, and they stick to the backs of these insects and they get transported to the next organ. Now they're, and then they're pollinated. Now, the seed is like pollen. There's hundreds of thousands of seeds in a seed pod and it gets blown by the wind. It has to right, fall in the right place to germinate. It's not like a seed that has to fall on the ground and then germinate. It has to fall in the right place because a lot of the orchids are epiphytes. There is a lot of other and, types. And what's an epiphyte? An, an epiphyte is a plant, something that grows in a tree. And so like that hole in that maple yeah, over they, there? Or the crotch a- of the tree. They grow in the crotch of a tree. Or anything like that, it has to find the right environment, the seed to germinate. So you might have a hundred thousand seeds, but only ten seeds find the right environment. Yeah. And so this had always been a problem through the years because orchids, even back in the eighteen hundred, were valuable. They were very valuable. They they'd pay tons and tons of money and their their monetary system that time value for one orchid because they were always brought in from these exotic places and they had to, they, you know, you know, 10 would die out of a hundred when they were collected and then they were so hard to propagate. So can you prop it? Can you clone orchids? Like you, you can, can. well, orchids now are done the same way. Basically you grow a bacteria or a virus. That's all a petri like dish. tissue culture in a sense. Well, there's two ways. Okay. You can get the seed and you can put it in agar, just like you would if you were trying to uh, take bacteria and multiply bacteria. It's the same substance. And you put some type of nutrient in with the agar, banana, potato, or something like that. And you put the seeds in there, then they germinate. But it had to be all sterilized. Yeah. Everything has to be sterilized. And then they'd be they'd usually done in what they call flasks instead of paper. And those flasks had to be sterilized. Seed had to be sterilized with uh, different different uh, compound and like uh, yeah, but you would have, to use, it, you have, you have to, to use a special compound to sterilize it. There were right. so many different components that were, you had to do, and you did this all as a hobby for a while. Uh, I, I, I never, <laughs> I've never actually done this. Because it takes a but how did you so, clean lab. so how did you find a clean lab like how did you have I, to I would to, I would because this is before the internet when you first started doing right this. you'd have to what you would have to do is in magazines there was Orchid magazine you go to Orchid magazine and in the back of Orchid magazine there would be all these places that had labs that would could take um, once you pollinated an orchid they would take a seed pod then they would create flasks for you. They'd sterilize the seed. They'd sterilize the flask, put them in this medium that was sterilized. They'd grow them. And then they'd have to, what they call, replate them. They'd have to take these baby plants that would form, and then they would move them into uh, other flasks. They'd separate them, 
and make until they got bigger, and then they take and move them into another flask. Several times they do this as the plant get bigger, and then they take them all out and put them in a pot, as a community pot. They break the flask open and they take the seedlings. But we're talking, we're talking a couple, three years, or four years before the plants are big enough to even put out. That's insane. And then after they were put out, then you had to wait till they got big enough to then transplant them into their own pots. And it would take five, seven, ten years before these plants would ever get to, to be blooming size. What do you think of that, Rich? I think that's a lot of dedication. You better love it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you had you had labs dedicated to doing this. So and so the crazy thing is it's like when I think about today. When I, uh, okay, so when I, like, um, look in a magazine and I see, if you want to get information from a magazine now, I feel like it's it's mainly filled with advertisements. And I'm sure it was advertisements back then, too, but I just feel like the, it's like before the internet, everything was a lot less sleazy. Like, it's it's when you think about information, because it, it sounds like, you got most of your ideas or most you fed this 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 hunger of wanting to learn more it, it sounded like a lot through magazines it was it was a lot through magazines a lot through books and it was in the beginning of the internet we'd actually have have chat rooms that we would go to and we'd meet people and we'd buy Buy because these flasks weren't cheap. You know, it'd be a few hundred dollars to get one flask. I mean, you would get a hundred plants out of it, or two hundred plants, but they were really tiny. But you know, who wants five hundred of one plant or three hundred of one plant? Yeah. So we would actually buy together when meet people I met online, and we'd buy it and we'd split them up and send them to each other. And then we start growing them out, getting them, let them grow bigger. Um, there's another way that nowadays, now orchids not only have species, there's hybrids, just like you do in all the other plants, but with orchids, that can be very complex because orchids shatter that whole like begets like. Yeah. There is, you know, you know, mostly you have to propagate from within species. Well, not with orchids. You can have cross genera. You have different generas. And a lot of these orchids today have five, six, seven different genera that have been hybridized together. They, they take two genera and they'd be able to uh, cross pollinate them and then have a new hybrid. Then they could take that one and cross it with something else. So these all are hybrids. And just like you do with Regular plant perennials, you find one that really is good. You you want to. I mean, it's even what's, what's going on with the cannabis industry, even. Yeah, like in you, California, you want to clone them. Yeah. So you would do the same thing that you would with the seeds. Way back when I was talking about propagating seeds, you take that agar culture with the the sugar in them, whatever it be, banana or potato, and you could take a cell from a part of an orchid and a growing tip. You would take that and you would clone it just like you would any of the petunias that we have or other plants that are all 
postponed the whole of the annuals or perennials to get the like same thing, and you wait for these things to start um, creating these little balls of cells. And these balls of cells, you tease apart, and you get more balls of cells. They were all copies of that original cell that you put in the agar, and you could keep going. And then when you were ready to grow a plant, you just let them grow, and they would turn into uh, baby plants. These baby plants, then you would take and move them up to the next size flask until they got big enough so that you could put them in a pot and then grow them. But it's Not, still talking five years. You're talking. Three so you're years. talking five years just from getting your stuff from the lab, right? Just so. Just in, and in the, the meantime, from the time you start, from the time you start, um, take, yes, take, you know, it could be three to five years before you get a plant that's flowering size or more. I mean, that's just crazy with the patients. I mean, like you look at like people that like get tissue culture, honeyberry or blueberry or um, rich. What are what are the plants you really like to get that you? You can't propagate without a lab. Well, the only two that I was at all looking at that are a little difficult to propagate are who you mentioned. Yeah. Uh, honeyberry, that might be only propagated by tissue culture right now. I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I think blueberry's kind of tough. Yeah, I know Grant Schultz had told me like you had to go through honeyberry. And I think, I think Little John said something too. And I actually think there's a good lady that does, I think she does tissue culture here. And, um, uh, there's a lady that does tissue culture here in uh, Ohio as well. There's other benefits uh, to, to tissue culture also. You can use it to isolate uh, healthy cells from a diseased uh, plant in some cases. Yeah. But that's, so I mean, but this is what, the point is, is that there was no internet. How you'd have to find this stuff was, was what, so people would have to put out ads in magazines? So magazines. Yeah, yeah that's was, a big thing. As I say, Orchid Magazine would have. So, is it. that how you would find other growers too? Like, I mean, how would you? Because it, there had to be some sort of community too. Because well, I imagine a, you said a, the American we, Orchid Society. So we, because you, you said you'd you'd buy it in groups. So, in the American Orchid Society, like how many? Because you you started in one state, then you moved to another. Did you did you while moving? Did you look for a spot where it had a good orchid? Society uh, meetup area or anything well, like that. Well, I actually didn't grow orchids until I get to oh, Connecticut. Oh, you got to Connecticut. Okay. Yeah, and then I I joined the uh, Connecticut Orchid Society, and I was lucky in the fact that I joined soon enough that I met a lot of the people that had been pillars of conservation and of promoting orchids um, in America. They were they were amateurs, but they had isolated certain plants that they would, genuses that were concentrating on, because as I said, there's 35, 40,000 different orchids without ever hybridizing them. Now there's probably a million different hybrids creating orchids. And that's all from stuff that people have done in the lab. Right. And all from people done in the lab, uh, because you most of them had to be propagated that way. In a, in a culture, you couldn't just sprinkle. In, in yeah. 1900s, they tried; they would try early 1900s, sprinkling the seeds around the base of the mother plant, and sometimes they were successful. It's not to say they weren't. If they're yeah. in the right conditions, 
the seeds will germinate of certain kinds of orchids that are a lot easier yeah. to propagate. They didn't, they, need, they didn't need the right, say, mycorrhiza, which we talking yeah. about, uh, the right, right fungus to grow with. So, so how did you, so how many years since it, it, so this hobby would take five years before you could see anything cool and pot it. Like how did, okay. So when it, when did you decide I'm going to turn this into a business? Was it just because you said something else too? Like somebody, I think you told me before, like somebody gifted you a bunch of orchids. At one yeah. Point? Well, first off, I never had any, I never sent seed out to get propagated. I always bought seedlings after they had come out of the flask i'd buy a lot of them from hawaii because that's a great place to, to to grow orchids whatever kind it would be yeah and do they grow well in florida too it depends as i say it's 35 000 different yeah. kinds. there's some that grow great in san francisco there's some kinds of what they call dendrobium which is a kind of orchid that has canes Look, some people think they're dead and they cut them all off, and actually, that's where they flower from. Um, but there's one called the Dendrobium cuthbertsonii, which is in one of those small pots that I told you about. And that little pot could be seventy-five or hundred dollars because they were so because they crazy. needed it's shot glass because they were growing up in elevations where they had a lot of UV, but they were cool. Yeah. So. San Francisco was perfect for it. Yeah. Because though it didn't have the UV, it had the light and it had the coolness. And so, so you were in Connecticut though. So did you have one of these? I had tried, I tried growing them. There is a grower in Connecticut that I believe is still in existence. They've been trying to sell their business. It was called J and L and they dealt with all kinds of miniature orchids. So how did, um, what were you able to successfully, grow these rare orchids that shouldn't grow in Connecticut, like under controlled, like what, what crazy things did you have to do to make this orchid hobby, uh, well, that eventually turned into a business in Connecticut. I know the answer, but I want you I to had talk to, about it. Well, I had funny. to grow, I had to, I had to build a 24 by 30 for greenhouse. And that's at your house now. You still yeah, have that it's greenhouse. A big, it's a gutta connect. It's a commercial greenhouse, 18 feet high. And I had to, I had to build that because I kept expanding and expanding, and I had to get a second mortgage. And you know, I I bought I built the the greenhouse with my brother. And what was your what was your wife saying when you were doing all this crazy shit? Oh well, she says, he shrugged. She's she's so <laughs> nice. She's so nice. I mean, I remember uh, when she hung out, and she was. I mean, she's totally. I mean, she was pretty interested in it. Like, she's like, oh, no, you should talk to him about these orchids. Like, it's very interesting. Like, it's, it's not like she was very interested in it, but was like, yeah, I'm going to help Paul, but I'm going to let Paul be Paul about this. Like, it was, yeah. it was pretty cool when she would talk about you and it. Um, so you built this great big hoop house, or not hoop house, this commercial greenhouse in your backyard, and it's for your orchid hobby. So what do you do in the wintertime? I mean, if, if you're I, talking well, about... I have to have heat. Because most of the orchids didn't like it below 50. Uh, some of them liked it at 80 and 90. So during the winter, we had to put, we started out with just a wood stove. And I was lucky when I first built the greenhouse is that we had two mild winters. So I had just had an all-nighter wood stove, which a lot of you probably are familiar with. It's still kicking around. 
and we'd have to feed that sucker, you know, all night. We, my wife would stay up till two because I was working or she was, I can't remember exactly what jobs we had, but she'd stay up until two feeding the stove with stove. We'd have to do that every three, four hours. And even though it was called an all nighter and I'd get up at five and I would then put wood in because during so the you, day, you and your wife worked out shifts. Yeah. We worked shifts feeding the, 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 the greenhouse for about three years. I think we did that. And then we said, you know what? This isn't working. So I got, <laughs> and, and what I had was I, I got a wood actually after two years, I said, this is enough. I got a wood boiler and I installed a wood boiler with a Modine uh, hot water system. And so I would force hot water. I would run the run the forced hot water through this old French boiler, wood boiler, and attach it to the Modine. And we're into the Modine. Now, was it French or French Canadian? It was French. Okay. It was a French brand. And I, then, I I had, I then the fan would funny. blow across the vent at the... <laughs> across the fins and heat the greenhouse. And while this is getting old, we still had to feed the, the wood boiler. So we put a gas boiler in with my buddy. Uh, we put a brand new gas boiler in so that we didn't have to stay up till two and get up at five. At least we can have some respite by at least going to bed at 12 and, and the gas boiler would kick in and I'd integrated it. So I had two thermostats. So that it would it would control both boilers, and I had thousands of orchids in there by that time. And you had kicked you had touched upon the fact that something about I had inherited orchids. Well, I had been work helping one uh, friend out who was in his sixties, late sixties, seventies. And how did you meet him? Through the orchid society. Okay. Through the orchid society. The gentleman's name was Ray Ties. Is the Orchid Society still like very alive and active? So if people yes, it for is. some reason yep. wanted to do this crazy habit where you have to wait five years to really enjoy any fruits of your labor and you have to do all this craziness that you did, yeah. if they want to get involved, they can find the Orchid Society and still right. do this crazy Yeah, well, stuff. there's the American Orchid Society and in Connecticut, there's a Connecticut Orchid Society and then there's the uh, Nutmeg Orchid Society, not my state Orchid Society. They kind of split up because they had a little bit of uh, drama. dispute, drama. Well, how come you're not meeting every meeting in the southern part? Or how come you're not meeting every meeting in the northern part? They'd alternate. They'd have one meeting in the north part of Connecticut and then one in the south. And some people didn't like that. So they created their own Orchid Society. <laughs> and I had moved on. I was doing other things. I also belonged to the Amherst Orchid Society up in Amherst, Massachusetts. I was doing a lot of work with them. I just enjoyed these people up in Amherst. They were, yeah, you know, but through the Connecticut Orchid Society, I met people like the, uh, the Jessops who were both avid fans. They had collected all over the world. Uh, Dr. Ben Bolena, who until he died, I worked in his greenhouse for three, two or three years. On Sundays, I'd go over there and help him out because he he was in a wheelchair and he had a, a emphysema-like disease, so he couldn't get around doing what he used to. And so I would help him. And this Ray ties, I'd go over there and we'd work together and we'd talk. And he'd give me, um, you know, divisions of his plants. And so I was collecting all this stuff. 
And when Ray Ties died, his sister gave me a bunch of his plants. And so I had those. And then when Ben Berliner died, I did get third um, refusal on his collection, which was a very good big collection. He worked a lot with plants called Lycastes and Promenia. And he had all these hybrids between the two. One, the Promenias were these little plants that grew in three-inch pots, and they didn't get big, much bigger than three or four inches high. He crossed them with these Lycastes that had these leaves that were 12 inches long, and their flowers were like four inches big or five inches big. And he crossed these little one-and-a-half-inch flowers with those. And So he had some cool stuff. He had some he cool stuff. But he had a lot of, he had a lot of uh, what they call catlias, which is the corsage orchid. Okay, yeah. From South America. Um, I bought he, a corsage orchid for my prom day so I saw adaptation. I thought orchids were cool. Yeah. And I thought roses were, were lame compared to orchids. Right. So, I, I'm, I'm not actually being dead serious. I really yeah. did do that because I saw, like, and I'm really curious because I, now that I'm into plants, have you seen adaptation, that goofy yeah. movie? Like, did you read the book? That, what, what is that book about? Because it seems like it was like um, a big deal um, in the orchid community. There was two, um, yeah, I have both. There's two. Really good books about it in the first. Because the movie's so crazy, because the guy was like, I don't know, I can write a script about this. So he just made yeah. this crazy story with Nicolas Cage, which was himself. Right. Like he wrote himself in it and this this craziness. Right. But he did pay some respect to like some of the scenes about orchids were really cool. Then you'd have him be doing all this weird shit, then this fake twin brother and all this stuff. So right. But right, I, I only think it's relevant. I think that was that was a little exaggerated. Oh, it was all exaggerated because the but, whole uh, orchid drug thing and all this right. other shit. And then the uh, orchid thief is the name of the book. The orchid thief. Okay, that's the name. The first book that came out, and that talked about and it was real stories. Yeah, talked about different scenarios of in the orchid world, and I knew several of the people that were in the book. Okay, and at the time I. Is it like a don't ask, don't tell policy? Like you're you're too involved and you don't want to disclose too much about the these these thief stories. Yeah, right. Because I've had the the ghost orchids. I actually sold some. I had some. Okay. I actually had some that I I, I used to sell. And once they learned how to propagate them, and that's the big thing, how to pro what particular way they had to. Uh, now the ghost, the ghost orchid. That's the orchid where they supposedly said the Native Americans found this drug that they could make from it. Um, yeah, I mean that was a joke. That was a, yeah. that he wrote that into the movie, didn't right. he? Like that wasn't in the right. book. But these are an orchid that don't have leaves; they have roots, and then they produce the this. All of a sudden, they produce Wait, so this they, little the roots grow out. Stock, the, they grow this stock out, and there's a flower. So and there's okay. all these roots. You just you can't find it because. Who can see just so it's roots kind of like a, a mushroom tree. with mycelium? Yeah, that's kind of what it is. And all of a sudden, these orchids would just pop up, and and I have had. And that's some. why it was called the ghost because it would just pop up out of nowhere. Right, exactly. That's fascinating. So a lot of that, and the characters in the book was this one guy. Like Chris Cooper was the alligator guy. And yeah, there's different different people. You know, there's one guy that was just obsessed, and he was obsessed, and the kind of people that do orchids. The same guys that want don't want that that crystal. Yeah, you know a lot a lot of your orchid people are also rock hounds. Yeah, or are mineral collectors because they always want something rare. They want something rarer That's than so anybody weird else. Because you just and it's treasure yourself. hunting. 
You're trying to find <laughs> that treasure. Is that's the same mentality? You go after it with the same fervor. I'm, I'm <laughs> assuming you've never heard of uh, so like real treasure hunting. So there's this uh, the Knights of oh man, it was like the the Confederate Freemasons. It's this real thing, the Knights of the Confederacy or something like that. And it's basically there's supposedly like all these secret gold stashes because it was like as a way for the Confederates to subvert. So there's this whole theory that like, and the reason I bring it up is because you brought up treasure hunting and this clicked in my brain. So there's this whole theory that Jesse James was never a real, there may have been one real Jesse James, but Jesse James became a persona because they were always robbing trains that there was some inside guy that would say, hey, this gold is moving from this location to this location. And it was somebody that was in the Knights of the Golden Circle. That's what it was called. And so apparently there's still all these unmarked treasures around. And that's why when people find, like, they have these shows about treasure hunting. Right. And they can find it. So um, I don't know why I just wanted to send you on that rabbit hole. But since you just said you're you're into rocks and you're into these these treasures, I was like, Maybe I could, because you talked about how you had um, a mineral, because uh, you were actually, you're staying an extra night because the weather's shitty. So this is why we could have this conversation, because you also do mineral, uh, what do you, you, I go mining yeah. for crystals and stuff like that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah and, and it's, it's, it's really fascinating, uh, and, uh, but I, I, you know, not to, to, to derail too much about orchids, but. You have like all these different things that you're really into, and I know we could do a whole podcast about each. So you you got really into orchids. So I'll, I'll tie this back in. So you got really into orchids, and what makes you decide? Like, was it like was it finding out? Like, was it getting more into edible landscapes that got you out of orchids, or what makes you well, decide? Have, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna slam the brakes on this and transition. I kind of transitioned into trying to. Grow some natives. I don't know. I kind of got out of the, the heavy obsession with the orchids because my kids, I, I was working with them um, in high school in a program called First Robotics. And I would work in January and February, 30 and 40 hours a week with my kids building robots to compete. So I had like battle bots, except the bots weren't allowed right, to And these, each are, these, other. these robot, robots were playing games. They were playing basketball. They were playing soccer. They were throwing frisbees for points, and they'd be playing against three robots against three robots on a field twenty-seven by fifty-four feet. And these robots were two feet wide, three feet long, five feet high. So they needed mentors, and I was willing to mentor. And my orchid business was always at orchid shows, which ran coincided with their season. So I had to make a choice. And my yeah. kids won out. My kids were, I chose my kids and I worked with my kids. So I left, let my. So that's your healthy addict. Go. Then. Huh? Your healthy addict. Yeah, then. I went and let my orchid passion go. And so then my son and I were out snow shoveling in February about seven years ago. And he goes into the greenhouse because I wasn't going in there every day because. You know, that it was pretty self-sustainable. I didn't have to water as often during the winter. And so he found... What, what, did you, what did you still have growing in there? After you I had... Of, well, I had a, 
I had thousands of orchids in there. So you still had the orchids. You just weren't actively trying to sell them. Right, exactly. So you had the collection still, but you weren't actively trying to 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 make a, to turn it and make a profit. Right. I was just, I'd sell a few a week, you know, to friends, to people that know me, that knew that I had orchids. for the hobby. Yeah. So they'd, they'd pay for the heat. Yeah. And my son goes into the greenhouse and says, Dad, you got to come, you got to come. And there was a foot of water in the greenhouse. What happened was the backflow preventer automatic fill had had a little pebble get stuck in it and the water was running out backwards from the boiler and shut the boilers off. So at this time I was running the gas most of the time and the heat went out and it had gone out for we don't know how long. And so the orchids froze. And then, because it was during a storm, it was a big snowstorm. That's why we were out there shoveling. The shade cloth had blown off, blown off. So not only did they freeze, they fried. Because after December, the day length gets longer. And in February, the sun's pretty intense. And I had to have like a 60% shade cloth on there to protect a lot of the orchids that grew in forests. And they didn't get full sun. And so not only did they freeze, they freeze. They fried, oh, man. and I lost all of them except a couple. How that, much? How much money do you think you lost? I don't even want to think, go there. Okay, <laughs> I don't even want to go there. That's how much. So we we just know it was it was it was kind of like somebody damaging the Mona Lisa. Priceless well, I don't amount. think it was that. Well, no. Time. If you think about the yeah. collections that you'd inherited that you had had, I mean, like. That's like when you look at how crazy orchid people are in a good way. And I'm not, I mean, I'm crazy. So like when you look at like how obsessed they are and, and, and if you look at the market, the patience, it takes five years to get this. You've been at this hobby for how many years when this goes down? Oh, so I started the hobby probably, see, I got to go by kid's age. Uh, well, probably about 20 years ago. And so I have been doing this for about 12 years. Um, I had, I had a zero inventory business. So everything was considered sold because I, I brought in plants and I flower them out and then I'd sell them. So I, every, every season I'd get a few extra plants and I'd be able to, or I could divide plants. I get more plants like you do with, you know, anything else. And then I had all these, I mean, I, I had plants that were 75 years old. There was, there was, there was orchids that, that, that. Yeah, that's priceless, man. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if you think about that, that, that lifespan of a plant and everything, it's 75 year old plant, man. I mean, that's, I don't want to keep talking about this painful memory, but how do you, how do you recover from something like that? Like, how I do didn't you, tell my wife for three months. Oh, wow. It was just too hurtful. I just, I, I couldn't talk to her, but I couldn't tell her that I've lost, you know, because we had vested a lot. She had invested in me yeah, by allowing me to, to get built the greenhouse, get all these plants. Um, and then they're all gone. Yeah. So I mean, that's just I devastating. Just, man. Devastating. So I started toward turning towards, other plants. I mean, I always had veg big vegetable gardens. Like I, like I'm just thinking. I, I wonder if that's why, like, 
I really like microgreens because I know I'm going to fuck it up in another eight days. We're good to go. Like, I can't. Can you, Rich, can you imagine me having a 75-year-old plant? Like, I I, I just wouldn't even. If somebody wanted me to even watch their plant, I'd be like, dude, I can't. I can't do that. Like, I don't. I had people give me plants, you know, or I, I got divisions of the plants, and they'd come back to me because their plant had died. And so, so they'd crazy. get a division of the plant that I had, and then they'd carry that on. So, I mean, in reality, it didn't just hurt you. It hurt the orchid community. And if yeah. you think about it in the big picture, and I don't want to kick it, but I, I just want like listeners to know like how devastating that was, not just for you, not just for your family, but for... People that are crazy about orchids. I mean, I had plants that that were. It's like, like an three art collection, feet wide, three feet wide and three feet tall. To me, orchids. it's like a, a an art museum that catches on fire and burns yeah. down. I yeah, mean, I think it was that's, that. that's like the equivalent yeah. of it because it's priceless, man. It's like you can't or, put a value on it. Garden. Or a botanical garden right. too, man. Yeah. yeah. And this, I had heard about this happening to other people, and I says, "No, I'll take care of this. I won't have that." And it did happen to me. And so that was like a common issue was the backflow. Yeah, that was it. One little freaking thing. Knocked it out. Then it worked. That's crazy. So you started getting into other plants. You're kind of depressed. You're not, yeah. you're not kicking your dog or anything, but you're holding it in. You tell your wife after three months and yeah. moving forward. So what happens? How do you get obsessed with these perennial plants and mushrooms? Well, about... I had my sister-in-law for backup. We we would go to all kinds of plant shows and you know uh, nurseries and everything like that. And we'd salvage, as I say, salvage people's perennial collections and we'd bring them onto our yards. So we were kind of adding more plants outdoors. And she really started. She started getting to herbs. She was getting into herbs and how herbs help our bodies and realizing that the AMA was a it was a scam. What's the AMA? The American world? Medical Association was oh, a scam you. that was perpetrated on the American people in the 1920s or whatever. The, so that they wouldn't have competition against these herbal quote unquote remedies that nobody could patent like the drug companies do. Yeah. So she was getting to these herbs. We were both doing the herb thing and growing, starting to grow some perennials. Uh, that are edible, and then at the same time, her daughter, my niece, got married to a gentleman named Michael Leonido, and some of you out there might know him. I think Greg Burns knows him anyway. Michael Leonido, you're the famous Greg Burns. Yeah, well, I know Greg might know him, but he's in he's in the Regen Ag okay group and the Jack Spiriker group and all those different uh, groups. Uh, so works with uh, Jeff Lawton, right? and he works with Jeff. He's administrator of his, Jeff Lawton's courses. Oh, that's cool. Um, that's how I first met him. Yeah. Do you need so, another beer, Paul? Um, no. Oh, okay, I do. So I didn't You're want to drink more of your one. beer. Yeah, I didn't want to drink more of your beer without offering you one of your own beers first. That's yeah. a classic Drew Sample move, though. So yeah, anyone that's ever hung out with me, well. It doesn't mind. I don't mind. He's let me sleep in his bed while he sleeps on the couch. So. <laughs> that is true. I did. I yeah, just so, put up my bed. Yeah, I even so, gave you clean sheets. Even clean sheets. Yeah, and that's a that's a first for me. Yeah, I you, used, like, you like the way I have a guest and and he gets to sleep in your bed. Well, I think it's because it's like uh, 
I have this open policy at the house here and I, and I actually like it. Like, I think it like, uh, it makes my life real. It makes like what I'm doing real. It makes it more special to me when, you know, you come here and, and, I forget who I was telling this, telling this to. It was like, you know, like shit really got real for me when Rich came here. And then it's like, you know, because it's like to me before when I look at last year, it wasn't like I it, it's easy for me to put myself on the back burner. And I and I was saying earlier, even like Rich is I mean, I had this conversation with Rich, like Rich is 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 a big advocate of me. It's a reminder of it because he. He makes sure I don't fuck up, and if I do fuck up, he doesn't let me not hear about it, and I, and I appreciate it, man. And it's like he'll fight with me, he listens to me, he deals with my bullshit, and and I can't I can't say enough good things about Rich. And and at the same time, it's like he's like, hey, man, my my friend Paul's coming. Is it cool if he stays? And I was like, yeah, dude, like that's that'd be fucking awesome if him and his wife came. And then when you guys are coming in, I was like, well, we'll let him. Well, ask him, you know, make sure before he books anywhere to stay that he asks me about where to go. And and I kind of had this idea in the back of my mind, like, I wonder if I could swing it so they could just sleep here and then they don't have to spend that money on the way. Because I have people that do that for me, so it's only right that if I do that for the people. And then I was like, all right, I got a place to stay tonight. Yeah, that's cool. And I was like, yeah, guys, stay in my bed. And then when you were coming back, I had I had this couch. That uh, big shout out to Cody Schlegel. It's Cody Schlegel let this couch that has a hide a bed that's not functional right now because when you ask somebody to store a couch at their house for free for four years, you really can't get upset if you don't know where you put the legs where you when you put it in their house. <laughs> so when it because we never we literally got this couch. I got it for like this set for 150 bucks. We tried to get it in my old house and wouldn't fit through the fucking door. So me and Cody are like, well, what are we going to do? I'm like, dude, I like this couch. He's like, man, you, you can put it in my house. Like, I got room for it. I was like, cool, dude. I really appreciate it. So, like, four years later, I go, we're moving the couch out. And I'm like, hey, dude, do you know where the legs are? He's like, you're asking me if you I know where the legs, legs were? You've left it here for four years. I go, I just wondered, man. I'm not upset about it. I was just wondering. Do you know where the legs are? This damn couch. <laughs> so not to steamroll or not to uh, throw an anchor in the middle of the conversation, yeah. but I now at least have a couch to sleep on. And uh, I actually have another guy coming to stay. Uh, I've had him on the podcast too. He does one too called the uh, Choice Conversations. And he's coming in Saturday. And I totally forgot about it because I'm a responsible adult. I just finished Brian Tracy's time management. Listen to all these skills that I really should learn. Like planning shit out and i was like it's it's just easy to get caught up in the season though it's easy to get caught up in the the hustle and bustle you know and i don't know about rich but i'm having a lot of fun this summer like last summer i wasn't having fun and this summer i am like i'm not where i want to be but i mean like we were talking about today how far we got stuff done and uh oh you're having fun right rich it'd be funny if rich goes no dude not really and then we had this big fight in the middle of your podcast paul he just has to learn to drive (laughs) <laughs> so this is a joke and it's not it's 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 worth talking about so we had the farmer's market today and uh we just planted out everything and it was like you know we're still getting better i we had stuff and we were trying to plan out how we wanted to do the beds and we're trying to get systems down 
we finally got everything planted, but I, I stopped having the luxury. Well, actually, no, Cody. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to put my foot on there. Um, Cody actually. <laughs> that's true. Uh, Cody had actually started growing out lettuce, so I'm going to buy his lettuce off him. And uh, kind of like ins- inspiration from me and what we're doing here. But so I didn't have much supplies today. So we were we went out and we looked at Rich's future nursery out on uh, on Cody's property. Big shout out if you guys haven't read Junction yet and uh, you list you read books. Highly recommend. It. It's a great fiction cr- crime fiction novel. It's all about kind of in the country and what this this country crime life is about. It's it's a great book. I highly recommend everybody pick it up and read it. Um, you can get on Amazon or Kindle. Um, I'm a huge fan of the book. I'm excited. Cody's teased me with some free chapters, but I want to shout out Cody. Cody's one of my best friends. And uh, so you guys were coming. And then I was going to head to the farmer's market because it's first come, first serve. So everybody gets to the farmer's market an hour and 15 minutes early so you don't get a shitty spot. And then you can actually sell as soon as you get set up. So you guys left after helping me, and, and we just did some little stuff. And I, I decided I was just going to go sell the microgreens we had, which most of that shit I just said wasn't really important for the story. But I figured I'd give everyone the details of our day today. And um, you guys were on your way back to the farmer's market to check it out and just kind of hang out because Paul's such a... Just like, hey, what can I do to help you guys? He just wants to do all this work. And I'm just like, man, I just want you to relax. Like, you're at my house. Like, I don't want you to do anything. You're a guest. He's like, no, I want to do something. And he's like moving stuff and just helping me and super helpful. And so what happened today, guys? I'm setting this up. So you're on your way to the farmer's market. That's all I know. I'm feeling good. And I get this picture. And it looks like Rich got a flat tire. He's like, well, this happened. I'm like. Well, no worries, dude. You get Costco tires. You'll probably get a free tire. He goes, no, I got hit. And I was like, oh, fuck, man. What happened, Rich? Oh, I don't know. I was I was driving. It was a left turn. GPS said turn left. And there was a sign that said no left turns between certain hours. So I had plenty of room. There was no one coming. And I hesitated a bit to look at the hours to see if I was actually legally able to turn left. And when I surmised I could and started to go, I thought I still had room, but the uh, someone was coming a little faster than I think they should have been. Yeah, they're going pretty fast for 25 miles an hour for that yeah. damage on your car. And, um, and also, Paul, didn't up. you say the uh, the car was the same color as the road, too? Yeah, it was that, you know, that off-gray off gray color that if you don't have a light sign, if it's coming from a, a background that's, you know, grayish and things like that with a little bit of clouds in the air, the sky, you can't see the car because they don't have their lights on. You don't recognize it right away. And that's what happened because I didn't see it until all of a sudden she's going too fast. Rit, I say Rit. That was it. Yeah, I thought I, thought I, you know, I turned in front of her, thought I could make it, didn't, didn't see and uh, got hit. Uh, luckily, I don't think there was any serious injuries. Paul and I made it through. Uh, I mean, all I know is you two guys aren't young guys, and you're not really, <laughs> you're not really hurting. And all I know is even when I got, we'll see tomorrow. I mean, you guys might feel. I remember I got rear-ended. I'm in my truck, and this lady fucked her car up on my my hitch, and my truck looked fine. I was like, look, I get cheap cars. Like, I don't want to call the cops. I don't want to deal with insurance. Uh, 
you're good, I'm good. And she was like so relieved and gave me the biggest hug ever and said, thank you so much. Yeah, I'm, I'm not worried. I get cheap cars too. And I should have gotten her number there because I'm sure she would have been a great wife because we both like cheap cars. But I didn't do it because I was still like, I was, I was very focused on making it home. So I had to do something. But anyways, that story kind of sucked. But yeah, I, uh, I hurt a lot the next day. Like I, I actually surprisingly hurt a lot the next day. And I felt fine that day because adrenaline was kind of kicking in. And, but I don't know. We'll see. We'll see what happens. I mean, you said you had some weird things with your hand, but that could have just been nerves. It could have been, you are an anxious person. Well, I hurt, I hurt my hand a little bit. It was a little sore and then I had some kind of numbness that went away. So I might've pinched a nerve or something, but I feel good now. And we'll, we'll see. I could be, we'll see tomorrow. I hope you guys, I'm, I'm happy that it was no big deal. And you guys actually well, I, I still came to, to the farmer's market and, Drew, I do have to say the the young lady that that hit us, uh, she did have a bloody lip from the airbag, and her wrist was bruised, and she was pretty shaken up. So I don't want to I don't want to just brush it off. I mean, well, she's not on this podcast, yeah. but her car is probably totaled, which sucks. Yeah, those airbags go. Your car's well, my done. My car might be total only because it's a eleven year old car with two hundred thousand miles. We'll I'm see. hoping not. You have a nice car, and you just put a lot of money into it, and. uh but uh, if not, I have two vehicles, so it's not a big deal. I don't really want to put extra miles on it, but we, we're not, we're not hurt. You know what I mean? Like that's why I have extra vehicles. I'm a prepared hillbilly. I have two thousand dollar cars. That's my, you know, my grandpa said he always tell a hillbilly's wealth by his cars. I'm not really wealthy money wise, but I'm wealthy with resources. I feel like and and friendships and relationships. And apparently, people in the neighborhood have leftover fireworks on the 4th of July because they're setting them off. But um, now that we're over Rich rich, uh, rich and his driving, <laughs> what were we talking about? We Paul? were talking about, you know, the kind of the, the path. And so... The path, yeah. The so, path. So at the same time, Terry's getting into herbs. I'm getting into herbs with her. Um, same time, her nephew, I mean, her son-in-law is talking about this thing called permaculture and I have no idea what she's talking. He's talking about. And this is what year? This is about probably six, seven years ago. Oh damn! This is before it stopped being cool to use that word. Yeah. And so now we try to avoid that word. Yeah, we want to use regenerative agriculture, or holistic, or agroforestry, or natural farming. Natural farm. People don't want to use the word permaculture because people think of woo 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 woo. Uh, and crystal uh, 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 power and is farther from the truth than let's pray anything. to Gaia before we do anything permaculture yeah rich, rich is that's what i love about rich you like if he believes in something he will not fucking like his heels go and he just gets no. in and he will like be like nope nope i don't care i'm using it for this way but i huh. i do the same thing i mean that's I mean, I, I mean, that's, I think, where we get along. But keep going. Sorry. So we kind of, all these things kind of came together about seven years ago. And so my sister-in-law had started talking about chaga, which is Ionotus obliquus, which is a kind of fungus we call mushrooms in the general terms. And it's a, it's a growth that's on birch trees that isn't actually the mycelium that what, of a fungus, and it's not the mushroom of a fungus or the fruit. 
It's kind of a sclerodia, which is kind of a storage area. And it grows on birch trees, not 100%, but mostly birch trees. And is it one of its kind? Is it one of its own thing? Yeah, it's, like it's kind of thing? its own genus. You kind know, of like an know. orchid. It's like orchid esque type thing. No. No, not. No, I mean, no. not like kind of an orchid, like similar plant. I mean, similar as in, like, look at that thing. That's interesting. Yeah, because it looks like somebody took a burl and took a torch to it. I mean, it's kind of like torch. mineral mining or anything. It's like what you're looking It's something. It, it was something new. Yeah, it's something new. And it's something that is harder to find. You have to, you have to, you know, know what you're talking about when you're going to find it. Properties as right. well. It, well, it's a well, what's unique about it and what's interesting about it is that you can make a tea out of it and you can make a tincture out of it. And the tea is something that you take and this growth, it looks like a burrow. You take and take a chisel and take it off the tree. You don't dig into the tree. You leave part of the growth. So, on because there. if you dig it in the tree, it's not going to reef. It's yeah, not going to come gonna back. Re- so it, it. it's turkey tail. What's the difference in that? Is turkey tail just like a traditional mushroom? A turkey tail is just a fruit, okay. fruiting body okay. of the mycelium. Now, is so, there? have you noticed anything like, are there more medicinal properties in mushrooms that grow out of bark versus underneath? Like, like cause, yeah, uh, I think that a lot of the, cause like pheasant backs grow out of the tree, right. but then uh, morals grow or morels grow at the base of it. Right. Yeah. A lot of the trees that are associated, a lot of the mushrooms that are associated growing on trees or on the base of trees, a lot of them do have medicinal properties. Though most fungi that you can eat or use for medicinal purposes um, are the, the, uh, the type that grow on trees there, shelves or something like that. All re- mushrooms really do have a lot of different uh, medicinal properties. They all kind of like food healthy. in general, though. If you're well, eating no, real a, food, it's it's fast. They do have a lot of antioxidant properties and antiviral and antibacterial. You know, whether it be you know um, shiitakes or even button mushrooms that you grow in a store, they're very good for your health. But getting back to the uh, the Ionotus obliquus, it is kind of woody when you harvest it. And you take chunks, and I take chunks and put it in a crock pot with water, and I make a a tea out of it. And we drink that tea every day. Now, the properties that it's supposed to be an antioxidant, it's an antiviral, antibacterial, it is what Alexander Solzhenitsyn drank when he had cancer uh, to help get him through the chemo. and things like that, and he talks about it in um, Cancer Ward, the book that he wrote, the novel that he wrote. And it on birch trees, because birch has this substance called betulin, and you take and that betulin that we is in the is in the chaga, uh, when you ingest the tea, it turns into a betulinic acid, which is the substance that goes through and helps you now you know if you can get that themselves. from like tapping birch because i'm pretty sure you can tap birch too just like a maple but and drink it's the birch something water. that happens within with a mushroom the mushroom being and in there. it's the relationship between the mushroom and the bitch in the tree 
That makes sense. Um, there's another way that you can do it. You can do an extraction and make tincture out of it. You do a double extraction where first you do it in alcohol. You put the tiger in alcohol and you let it sit. And then it draws out certain chemicals out of the out of the chaga. And then you take that, you take that chaga and you put it in water and do the same thing, make another thing. And then you combine the two. Um, and that that takes out the water soluble and the alcohol soluble substances that are in the chaga. And don't ask me right now. Couple of beers and I'm forgetting the chemicals. <laughs> it's okay. We don't need the exact chemicals, but basically, but anyways, and you you got into this mushroom, and so I got into this mushroom first. It's the first one I got into because my my sister in law had said, you know, why don't you check this out? And I did. And at the same time, I started reading up on you know, kind of investigating permaculture. I found Jeff Lawton online. So I mean, I, I, I met and, people like and hit rewind a little bit. Like what? When the internet came out and you first started messing with the internet, did that help your your rabbit hole of 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 craving information? Like, did that help your not your rabbit hole? Did the rabbit holes you can go down in the internet quickly and easily? Did that help feed your hunger? Yes, it and, did. And, yeah, it did. Because now I transitioned. I wasn't reading the magazines. I could just you know punch it into the. In what Google. year? What year did you get rid of magazines? Most, I still was buying magazines, all kinds of gardening. I still buy them. Yeah, but what anymore. year did you shift? Like, do you remember Probably when it was? Probably about seven years ago. Seven years ago. So, it, yeah. So Even though I had been, I was a, I, I was a big internet guy. I was doing all kinds of, you know, I was doing things on the internet. I was, you know, I was on the listservs and all kinds of things like that right from the beginning because as a job, I was designing in, uh, AutoCAD, so I had a lot of background in programming and everything. So you're doing like 3D printing stuff? No, I was doing uh, but designing auto... fire protection systems. Oh, okay. I thought you said I thought you said something else. No. Sorry. but so yeah, I had this transition and I started investigating, and then Mike, my nephew Mike, started talking about you know permaculture and this and that. So who? And, what was the first permaculture rabbit hole you went down? I went to New England Grows, which is the big uh, industry uh, uh, convention in Boston for the Landscaping and the Nurseryman's Association. And there was a gentleman talking strictly about permaculture there. What was his Very name? Much, I don't remember. He was a so he wasn't from so he wasn't like a, a big name designer. No, he's not he in habit. He's not in anything. No, he but wasn't. But what this guy but... said, you sat you sat in the room. You're listening to this guy talk, and it's sucking you in. It sucked me in. And so I then went home, and I started reading everything about things. And Mike, my nephew, had taken Jeff Lawton's course, and he got his PDC. In person. This is pre-internet course. No, this was online course. Oh, well, how long has he done online courses for? Well, five years. It was his first online course, I believe, he took. Yeah, because he took it. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, because you did the second with Greg and uh, Rob and everybody else, right? Yeah, and sure and Justin Hunt, it, yeah, no, no, because I know Justin Hunt, you, Rob, and Greg all did the second one with uh, Jeff Lawton. So I did it like the fourth year that Jeff Lawton had. I took, a, but I had gone to New England Grows, and I just started reading things like uh, yeah, Toby Hemingway's Gaia's Earth. Mm -hmm. Um, 
Then I picked up Paradise Lot from Paradise Eric Cohen's mind. And you're like, this guy's close. Yep. This guy's here. And I didn't really do anything much past when I met Rich. It was three years ago. But when did you start foraging for mushrooms? Like as soon as you got that stuff? It's kind of like, coinciding with all this. So this you're doing mushrooms and then finding permaculture all at the same time. Right. You're, you're getting into foraging. You're going out in the... I tell you what, man, I, I, I didn't really know you. I was like, man, Paul's an older guy. You know, I don't want to make it too uncomfortable. Like it's hot and muggy. And the whole time we're going out and like the hot muggy, we're doing these trails. You got through, there's all these bugs. You're going through these leaves. You're just enjoying the shit out of yourself. I'm like, he must do this often. Like he must really go out in the woods and just enjoy himself. Yeah. I go out when I'm not supposed to be going out. Like, in the fall and I don't have orange <laughs> on and I'm going past tree stands. <laughs> yeah. Even in Vernon, I mean, this is a, this is a suburb kind of part of it. State forest in Connecticut. And that's where they hunt deer on this side of the road. You hunt deer. So when did, when did you start foraging around the same time? Yeah. Around the same time. Uh, I so, would go so, on weed walks with my sister-in-law. She'd be teaching me a lot, but the mushrooms I was going out by myself, I was going out learning the shelf mushrooms. So you've been doing you've been doing the mushrooms for let's call it for about six years. Six years, and you heard about permaculture about five years ago, or six yeah, years ago, five six years ago, and so it was mushrooms first, then permaculture. Right, but I had been doing permaculture. You know, are we using? I mean, you were using stone terracing, just terracing, just, just out of hobby and organics and beyond yeah. organics. You know, no ecocides. And I was enriching the soil with organic matter. Well, I imagine uh, if you're a crazy motherfucker, which I don't like cussing as much. Well, that's not true. I love to cuss. But I'm trying to cut it back. That's my name is Cusson. Yeah, exactly. Cusson. Uh, <laughs> really Cusson. Cusson, but because I have like Cusson, Cusson here. Uh, if you're crazy enough to mess with orchids and you have th- priceless plants why wouldn't you get stupid about soil or not stupid, but like go crazy about soil? Why wouldn't you be like, well, what does this need to be? So I don't miss out. Like I have something incredibly valuable. I I can only imagine that like that would even like, I'm sure you were into it with house plants and then you're, you're into it because you're like, man, what the hell's going on this driveway? I keep getting this runoff. How can I stop this? Then I imagine when you get orchids, you get into orchids, you get in that, that, Man, can can you? I, I just, I mean, when you have, I think when you put a price on something like priceless orchids, it makes you pay attention way more than somebody that's just growing microgreens. Yeah, it keeps you focused. or somebody that's, you know what I mean, like somebody that's in his kitchen well, or it's growing the microgreens. Personality, yeah, his personality type that's very detail oriented. Oh yeah, for sure. That was drawn to the orchids because he was able to focus on that. And yeah, do well with it. Well, that's what I'm saying. If you're the type of person that goes, somebody who doesn't pay attention to detail isn't going to find orchids enjoyable. Definitely not. There's no way. There's it's five years until you can actually enjoy something. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, even the the fastest plant, the fastest flowering orchid is like the Valinopsis that you buy at Costco and everything like that. What yeah. they do is, and we're getting back into orchids, uh, like in Taiwan. They take the orchids, they take them out of the flasks. Now that's so Taiwan, flag, right? Taiwan. Okay, you said it with that New England accent, so uh, I wasn't. 
Oh, well. Can we just specify <laughs> that's a Boston accent? Boston, Boston. Accent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyways, anyway, so in Taiwan. No, in Taiwan, <laughs> once they get these plants out of flasks, they'll grow them out of the flask for about two or three years. Only two uh, or three years. Because this is the fastest one, and maybe four, whatever it is. But, it, I mean. But they take them, and they grow them at sea level. Yeah, and was so they they create an environment of sea level, like right. they, like oh, at wow. sea level. So that's the temperature, and then they, when they're ready, they feel they're big enough. They take them up into the mountains where there's a the temperature difference, and that temperature difference has to be more than twenty one degrees. And as soon as they do that, they'll set put spikes out, and in about two months, they're having spikes grow, and they ship them off to the United States because crazy. now it this plant. Is that's what the requirements are for the seasons? They're trying to, they're forcing the plants to grow flowers. So, I mean, is that when you really got into learning about soil and everything was with your orchids, or was it before? Yeah, well, we were we were dabbling with all kinds of mediums. What's the best medium to yeah. grow the orchids in? Because these are epiphytes, these phalaenopsis are actually epiphytes. They don't grow in bark and perlite and charcoal like you get. In the pots, they grow in trees. They don't have any perlite. They don't have any charcoal. Yeah. They just grow in the detritus that falls from the trees, and the seed will fall in. That's where they grow. So, what were you doing to create these soil mediums? Yeah, you, you you would either buy you buy a mix, or I would buy the perlite. I would buy the bark, and I would buy the charcoal, and I'd make up the appropriate mix and the appropriate size. Of the bark, charcoal, and perlite, according to the size of the orchid and the, the root size of the orchid. That's so fucking crazy. <laughs> I love it. You know, like, that's so like that's so certain crazy. Certain orchids wanted more drainage. They have yeah. Been, so okay, you know, so you're in, you're into permaculture. You have this background. Right. You have this history. Then what do you start doing around the property? Well, I had I had been building the stone walls, and I also started. Growing things like aronia, which is a native berry. Um, I started doing other things like that to produce growing perennials. I was perennial for rhubarbs and maybe horseradish. And I was planting out different things. And then I kind of, about three years ago, really got into, saw the inhabit, saw Eric Tonesmeyer, met Rich. And we started volunteering up in Holyoke, Mass., both Rich and I, um, helping on this tenth of an acre that Jonathan Bates and uh, Eric Tonesmeyer had that started out with bare soil, if that's what you want to call it. It was clay and gravel and everything like that. And they created this, this garden of edible plants, perennial vegetables, perennial fruits, um, edible leaves, trees, pawpaws, persimmons. They had peaches, they had apples, they had Asian pears, raspberries. You name all the berries, the gooseberries. They have uh, clove currants, clove berries, whatever we want to call them. They had buffalo gourds, which they don't like. <laughs> but they also were creating gills. They were creating plants, systems, similar to the, the uh, three sisters of beans, corn, and uh, squash, and they were creating these polycultures with different shade, 
and son combination. And I started helping out there about three years ago. Paul, can you give an example just real quick? Because of like here. Well, we were talking. The, the area we, of the pawpaws along Eric's the right. side of Eric's well, house would be Well, a good we were example. talking about that we went out. Um, Drew Fortune. and I went out. We found the we found the ramps. Well, we found pawpaws. We found ginger. Then we found the black walnuts. That's a that's a polyculture. That's a that's a guild. Those plants exist together, supporting one another. They all have different functions within the system. And at Eric's, they have they'll have the pawpaws. They have these ground beans, which are nitrogen fixers. They have uh, gooseberries growing plant. I think. Toothache plant in the same they area have, with the yeah, ramps. The toothache. Why plant. they call it toothache plant? Because when it, it numbs your tooth, actually, when you. <laughs> no way. Yeah. How's it taste? Almost like an ambisol. Yeah. Yeah. Because they have different plants like that, and. That's crazy. What's funny? Com- what's funny common, is you know the common the common. Uh, why is it surprising though? We'll do that. It's coneflower. We'll do what's that. What's so funny is like it's so surprising, but it's like, well, fuck, dude! All these drugs had to come from somewhere. Yeah, right. like I don't, I don't know why it's still surprising. I don't well, know why before, I had that knee-jerk reaction before you get off. Yeah, on, sorry, no, I don't want to get off on that tangent. tangent. Yeah. One of the things I want to touch on is once you have all of these plants in a guild in this polyculture that they would be in in nature, yeah. the growth rate is improved. Those pawpaws, they're ten years old, next to Eric's house, are huge. They've they've been cutting them back, and you wouldn't see that if you just had a pawpaw sitting with a a mulch ring around it. Right. Yeah, they want, yeah. They, they're improving the soil. They each have something. Some of them are dynamic accumulators. Yeah. Some of them nitrogen fixers. Some of them uh, break up the soil, getting making airways with their roots for uh, water and, and uh, airway channels for water and airways passages. They're taking advantage of different times of the year. So the ephemerals like the ramps are getting the light when nothing else is. There's no there's no foliage out. So it's it's and they're all dropping their leaves, because most of these are deciduous, um, creating more soil. You know, yeah. the organisms are getting that they're incorporating uh logs with shiitakes in them. You know, they're having oysters growing on the logs. That there, there's all kinds of fungal life and bacterial life because of the collie culture and the organic matter that's being increased in the in the system. Uh, but this is this is what I started getting into the combination of these and 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 how fungi help with so everything. Did They're you bring life. up did you bring up ideas of fungi to Eric and them or were they already kinda of on that path? Oh well, they were doing that. Yeah. They, were, they were doing that. Does that give um, you more ideas? Like what, yeah, it what gives you, me more ideas. What have you guys learned like collectively, the both of you, from going to, to Tones Myers and uh I don't know I I don't know the other guy because he wasn't in the movie. Jonathan. Jonathan, Jonathan Bates. Bates. Like what have you guys learned from spending time there like what have you learned like what what it what it because rich was doing cool shit on his property and now he's doing cool shit here you're doing cool shit on your property still so what did you guys take back observation just observation and copy of nature it's and diversity yeah you know they that you can do it on a small space it doesn't have to be 20 acres you can do it on a they're a tenth of an acre. 
and they've got 300 different varieties of edibles there. Yeah, that's crazy. And because it was a small space, being able to see a complete mature system. Yeah. You know, it's, it's hard to see a site when you're developing 100 acres that's fully I mean, even, developed. Even five acres is hard, even one acre. Like, it's so... I mean, even a third of an acre, like what, what Joel's working with now, like what, what he's trying to develop on his little over two acres. Like it's cool. It's in the process process, but man, like you're yeah. working with nature. You're sometimes wrestling with it too. And it, yeah, well, it, looking, it, it can out wrestle you. Just like you said, you got to go back as the wife says, the weeds are yeah. going out of control or That's something why like you that. You work with nature, Drew. You don't yeah. wrestle. You yeah, still, no. but sometimes when you work with it, it tries to wrestle you. Well, I get, you know, I've had the opportunity to look at his tenth of an acre and then going out to Ben Fox and he's, he's got his whatever five, six, seven acres that he has of his home homestead and seeing how he's changed his system over the years because certain things didn't work, failures, things that, oh yeah, it works, but that's way too much energy to put into something like the rice patties. Yeah. But he learned that. I can't grow sea berries in a real a polyculture that I would like an apple tree because the harvesting, if I'm going to produce a crop, is this pragmatic. It's uh, functionality. Uh, yeah, pragmatic uh, applications to certain things that I have to put the sea berries in a row so I can run a machine down there to harvest them. Because if I you try to harvest them by hand, if at the quantity that he wants to harvest, can't do it. And this is his new 175 acre property that he's now putting swales in and planting his sea berries out. Sure, he has a polyculture. He has comfries in there and he has herbs and other things growing with the sea berries, but he has to put them in a line. He can't, he can't put them in a checkerboard pattern because it's not efficient. You have to have some efficiency if you're going to produce a yield. And, that's what part of permaculture is. You need to produce a yield. And so that has to outweigh some of the other things that uh, might be other principles of polyculture. You have to be pragmatic about it. The same thing with Eric. Oh, oh, I'm growing this plants, but they don't taste good. They're edible, but they don't yeah, taste good. Yeah, that was good. the best in that video with Jeff Lott. And he's like, yeah, we have all these plants up front here. I don't like the taste of any of them. Or something like that. I've been trying to get this variety that tastes good, and right. he just I can't so, find any that does. So I'm probably going to get rid of them and try something new. You know, they're they're still learning. I mean, they're practicing, but yeah, I mean, that's like the importance of go. staying in phase one, right? Well, like staying as the the newbie or wanting to always be in this I, the mindset of the beginner, because you're never going to get stuck in your ways. You're always going to still learn. You're always going to want to to grow and expand and you're always want to, I mean, you always want to sharpen the saw. Yeah. Well, you want to self-analyze and yeah. accept feedback. Yeah. And that's what you, that's what both of them are doing yeah. in their circumstances. 175 acres versus a 10th of an acre. They're both coming to the realization. There's certain, uh, principles that override other principles. Yeah. Like the yield. You have to, I mean, we're, we're producing, we want to produce seaberries so we can do, have a product. We have to have, well, it's got to override something. Yeah. You know, some of them have more weight in certain instances. Or if it doesn't taste good, why grow it? 
Yeah, I agree. I think if if you don't have a market for it, then it's there's there's not a point in growing. And I and I think even um even even for us, I mean, the market changes too. And what are you gonna do? Well, there can be a point in growing it, not just the market. Remember, no, there's I, ecological roles. I, no, no, I agree with that. But I mean, like if you're if you're if you're if a crop is designed. I mean, it's always if nice. If it's a crop, yes, there's no point in yeah, growing it's, it. It's always nice for for something to have multiple functions. I think that's the key, right? You always want it to have multiple functions. Yeah, you want to stack your functions. You want to have, yeah. you know, but, multiple purposes. But, but I, I think you have to get ready to shift. I mean, even like, let's say you're, you, you start growing all these crops because you need nitrogen in your soil, right? But then it, there, there's this tipping point where, well, fuck, man, we have a t- too much nitrogen. So what do we do now? But also, do you have if you're growing a nitrogen fixer such as uh, black locust? Yeah. Am I going to keep dealing with the thorns? Yeah, the thorns. Know, it depends on where it's success what? through those a nitrogen yeah. fixer yeah. is, and a, is and a pioneer plant. Well, and I think you know Mark Shepard, he breaks that down really well too. Like, look, well now we have a wood surplus. Now we can sell this wood. Right. now we have this surplus now, right. and it, and I think it's you know I mean it's it's all about I mean a system entails all about like not just um not just having the land function but you know just like what we were talking about earlier Rich where you're like no I mean if you want to have a nonprofit have a successful business and then take your extra money or any surplus that you don't have that you're you know take your your surplus from your business and put it in your nonprofit Right. Well, that's a Mark yeah. Shepard. He's the one that kind of turned me on to that idea. Exactly. Exactly. And it's the same thing of um, having, you know, having everything pay for itself. Having, you know, uh, Paul selling a few orchids here and there to pay for his greenhouse and the heat or anything like you want things to pay for themselves. And I think that's the whole thing. And it's just like, that's the idea. I mean, if you want a complete system, that's what you need. And, and you agree with this. Well, that, and that's a system too. That's yeah, part exactly. of the system. Exactly. You know, and, and you get that. And you can't I, and pay the bills. That. The system falls apart. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, anyway, so and I, and that problem is becomes a solution is a viable. The problem phrase. is the solution. I'm sorry. Keep going. Yeah. It is viable. I mean, you know, if you say the I said jokingly the black locust gets in the way and it's gone, they cut it down. And then you burn it because it's great it. firewood. Or I mean, you Greg, use it for posts. Greg Burns, yeah, Greg Burns will argue with anybody about the benefits of black locust versus something else. So I remember Nick Ferguson posted something and Greg was talking about the amount of heat you get out of black locusts. And I think the only, one of the only woods that he has growing on his property that isn't is the dogwood. The dogwood will produce more heat um, per per pound, I think, or however they measure that. Is the, it the native the, or the kusa? Uh, I don't know. Must I, be native. Because a kusa tastes wonderful. Of dogwood? The dog, kusa dogwood fruits. Oh, his is, get the right no, there's no, there's no, uh, there's no fruits yeah, on it. Yeah, yeah, but you know what loves the dogwood are the pigs. The pigs love to root up the dogwood, or the pigs actually wear them down. It's way easier for Greg to go down there and cut up the dogwood so he has firewood. 
So, but I think, but that's still part of his system, right? Like it's, it's all part of his system. And I think yeah. that's, that's the point of it that you guys are talking about Eric's before I started to drew up the conversation there. But I was just trying to say, you know, you guys saw Eric's had a complete system. You observed Eric. Why I got in this was he was talking about, you know what? I want this for my system. I want this specific kind of plant and I want a variety that actually tastes good because there's these other benefits and this isn't serving its purpose. So now it's time to move on and put something new there. Well, something in. Yeah. It's, It's succession. Yeah. Whether it be. Whether it be a disease that it gets rid of the plant, it's too much sun, too much shade, can be too much human. Now, wasn't the thing with his, uh, what plant was that took off? Wasn't, isn't it his, uh, his, his house pawpaws that were kind of an accident or which was it that it, it has this great effect, but he didn't, it was, that wasn't the original intention, but now it's like, it grew a lot better on the side of his house. Um, is it Chinese yams? I think it's the Chinese yams, right? Yeah, because there's, du- there's dual purposes for it. Yeah. Where the, you get the big tuber in the ground that gets two and three feet high, long and weighs, I don't know how many pounds, that you don't harvest every year. You harvest it every four years, yeah. three years, five years. And it's more of a survival uh, food. And then it has this vine that creates all this aerial bulblets that you can use like potatoes because they look yeah. like little half-inch potatoes, round half-inch potatoes. And you cook them just like potatoes, you boil them, and you put butter on, and they're awesome. I think they're that really was good. it, wasn't it? You guys, had they had to have that meal. You guys had the potluck or something, it had to be a meal from another place, and they used the Chinese yams? No, that was actually the one that you're speaking about now, I believe, was mesquite flour that huh. he made some cornbread for that meal. I'm not sure. But, I don't know. You you have a ton yam, of stories about and that. And one of the things that I comes to mind with the Chinese yam was one of the workshops we were harvesting the aerial tubers, the yam berries as they called them, and they're delicious, like new potatoes. Yeah, yam berries, that was it, yeah. But we were harvesting them, and where they were growing on the porch, people were trying to hold a sheet to catch them while we shook the plant. And I remember Eric standing there saying, uh, we, were, we were having just yamberries falling everywhere, probably more on the ground than we were catching. We still had a big bowl. And he says, you see the design flaw here, don't you? Because no one thought about how do we harvest them. I mean, it looks yeah. good they're growing, but man, it's hard to harvest. He's growing up the side of the steps on the on the porch. So it was it was having someone point out where we should have done this better, learn from our mistakes, see this, have it in place to learn these things right yeah that's great man um it's an excellent point and i think i mean even you know and i think you took that here and helped me out a lot you're like why is this like this drew i mean you're you're this or you know what i mean and even the way we redesigned the hoop house i think you took that that principle because we were trying to figure out a way where we can maximize growing space and avoid design flaw in a sense because there are certain things that you know, that Curtis tried to point out to me because I built everything to fit me, not recognizing that I'm a lot bigger than the average human. And then I have Rich come, this guy that's come to help me. It's my washing and drying station's too big. Some of my beds that I built are way too big for him to straddle. And it was just like a little work for me. And I wasn't, I wasn't thinking long, 
And well, I, I think would that's ask you questions. And I'm like, Drew, why am I if this is the work height we're gonna work at, why am I reaching into a bin that the top of it is at shoulder height? <laughs> yeah. You know, maybe we should have thought about this yeah. is a table that's gonna hold a bin that's three, you know, two feet high. Yeah. No, I and I and I agree. And it was just like there's different things that you know, it's it when you're trying to fight, let's get this done. I wanna get this oh, done. I understand I wanna, completely. Oh, you totally did it, but it was it, it was even when Curtis goes, man, how big are your beds? And I was like, oh, they're a little bit bigger, uh, but we're taller. And he goes, no, you don't think about you. You think about your employees in the future. And I was like, damn. Yeah, that's thinking long. And I think like that's the biggest difference is, are you thinking long? And I think like when you think about design, which, you know, permaculture is design science. Like, are am I thinking long? Like, Am I building this for me or am I building this for the future generations, right? How far, and, how far out can you take it? How yeah. many things are you affecting by this one decision? Yeah, yeah. And it's easy to lose it's easy it's easy to lose sight of that. So And it's like just planting. You know, I was a landscaper for about five years. And I'm like working for the man. And I always have to think about right plant right place. Yeah. And it goes across the board. You really have to think of legacy when you're doing certain parts of the system, like planting trees and bushes. Are they going to impact my right away? They're going to impact somebody else's right away. Um, will people be able to, you know, harvest? And that's what we're talking about with the sea berries. Yeah. Oh, that'd be great. It looks great if these. Plants are all spotted and they're all surrounded by gooseberries and they're surrounded by the comfrey and they're surrounded by the, the like calendula. But how can we harvest it? Yeah, I think design and aesthetics. I mean, aesthetics versus design. I mean, you know, obviously when you're doing a design, you want something that looks good and feels good. But, you know, I think it's easy to lose focus on looks good and then forget about feels good. Right. And I think that's the thing. Like, does it feel good when you're trying to harvest those yams? Well, don't underestimate yeah. looks good, though, because. Oh, no, I don't want to. You no, know, my yeah. design back in Connecticut was it looked, also it was to both. be an oasis. Oh, yeah. Me. Oh, so you're. I wanted it to look natural. Yeah. yeah. Dave Jackie includes zero. Zone zero in his zones of a permaculture design, which is aesthetics. It's, it's beauty. Yeah. It's a appreciation well if you want to get people it's interested music, in it's it other yeah. things like that that people just kind of forget they work on all the the uh solid things and the and the static things but they forget about the abstract yeah no i i 100 agree the i, I think effect on your neighbors and the people passing by yeah like i was just even thinking in this conversation right like right now we have this big wall of hedges here, right? And I have this big tree and it provides this nice canopy. It keeps the porch cool and it provides this shelter here from the street. But eventually, I think once Rich and I, or if Rich moves on, it's just me here, I'd eventually want it to be something. So probably people can see stuff that we're doing here. We want it to be inviting because now at the alley, it's cool. We have this fence which is this nice guard, but it's easy to see through the fence and people can drive by and say, mm, not, not this greenhouse, which really happened. This sling blade looking guy. 
But, you know, people can walk by and, you know, I think part of part of really getting into this is wanting to inspire others to do it. That's where subservience comes in, where yeah. you want to be subversive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Absolutely. you want to rub off on the next person. Because revolution doesn't always work. Uh, most of the time it doesn't work. And I think, I think you know, Luke Callahan said, and I think it was at PV2, um, Luke said, you know, man, if you want to make a change in your, in your local culture, your local society, the best way to do that is with business. And the best way to do it is with, in, in, in reality is with action too, right? Like, you know, this doing to me, urban farming is a political action, right? Or doing a cool land design. That's a political action because it's, not, it's not necessarily politics in the sense that you're choosing some official, but your action and the way you treat your land and the way you interact with your nature is 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 going to influence others in the way that they look at their own land. I mean, just like Eric Tone's model. And, and right. You know what I'm saying? And I think just like what Rich did in his neighborhood, just like what we're doing here, just like what you're probably doing at your property. Right. So I, I think... Well, let's not forget... Permanent permaculture came from permanent agriculture, agriculture, but it quickly became permanent culture. Yeah. And, and Bill Mollison talked about how he, he recognized the importance of that. And, and when you were talking, you reminded me of a, a great Bill Mollison quote that I just wanted to, to read really quick if I could. Yeah. And here it is. It's to be a complete person, we must travel many paths. And to truly own anything, we must first give it all away. This is not a riddle. Only those who share their multiple and varied skills, true friendships, and a sense of community and knowledge of the earth know they are safe wherever they go. Bill Mollison. That's why I'm sharing my bed with Paul tonight. Not together, though. (laughs) (laughs) I set that up perfect for you to say that joke on accident. Yeah, that's a great quote, Rich. And, um, And I tell you guys what. We are almost at two hours already, guys. Look oh, at this. All right. All right. Uh, I want to finish up a bit. and uh, This could have went hours more because I wanted to ask Paul so many questions well, ask about him orchids. Some questions. Oh, no, oh, no. Yeah, it yeah. could go. There was just so many cool things he brought Let's up. Let's put it this way. Yeah. And we gave time. Well, we I did say. talks about orchids. Yeah. A friend, my part, I did have a business part at one time. We gave a workshop, and it started at 9 o'clock in the morning, and it was an advanced master gardeners uh workshop and we were supposed to go from nine to 12 well at 12 o'clock we were still going and we asked people if we should stop and we ended up going till three o'clock yeah and you've been on the radio twice before talking about orchids right well yeah i was on once before in the garden talking um in connecticut with len giddix good old lenny giddix yep salesman for uh oh, brain went dead. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, he was a plant salesman, anyways. <laughs> again, <laughs> so let's uh, but okay, so let's fast forward to now. Like, what are your goals now, Paul? I mean, you're you're in retirement. Yeah. I know you wanna you wanna try to make some, figure out a way to capitalize your skill sets and make some money. Like, what what? And and I think and not necessarily just to make money, but I think probably more so your orchid business making money around which you did pretty well with your orchid business um and 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 i think so 
So what are your plans now? Where do you see yourself living well, out your well, your years, your glory? What do they call the golden years? Golden years. Yeah, well, we're we're establishing more we didn't uh, even... perennial plants because I, I have pawpaws myself growing, and I have my first fruits this year. And they're not from seedlings, and they're not from grafted plants. They're from suckered plants that I got from a gentleman named Carlos Andover, Connecticut. And he had cut the suckers because pawpaws are suckering plants like uh, aspens are. Yeah. And he cut the root, the suckers, let the plant establish a root system. Then he put them in pots and he was selling them off. And I bought a bunch of them and shared them with friends for a price. <laughs> I didn't give them away because they had, I had paid for them. And I was able to overwinter them one year and I healed them in. And then I planted them out last spring, and I've got this spring. One of them had 60 to 70 fruits on it of pawpaws, and it's self-aborted all but like eight or nine. Um, but those are growing well. They're getting to be good size. And another one that produced four or five. And so I'm really excited because I have these plants, but they're eight feet tall. I'm not starting with two-inch. I'm not starting with one foot seedlings. Paul, are they all from the, the same tree? These three, the three that I have going well are from Carlos. Then I have two grafted uh, plants that were grafted onto seedlings from a guy at Cricket Hill Gardens in uh, Connecticut. You can look it up. He's doing a lot of work with persimmons, pawpaws, uh, aronias, and other fruited plants, grapes, um, apples. He's doing a lot of grafting. He's doing a lot of good things. Um, I have a couple of grafted plants in the ground that I happen to buy at Logies, which is a uh, exotic plant place in Connecticut. Um, but I'm planting these out because my eventual thoughts are that I'm planting hazelnuts from Mark Shepard. Uh, I have uh, honeyberries from Grant Schultz, and I have elderberries from Grant Schultz. And I have, and I've bought packages. I have some of the sea berries from Ben Falk. I've been acquiring plants so that I can start planting, but I still have to finish my design. And that's the important part. Where do you plant things and how do you design it? It's not just, okay, I got them. I'm going to stick them in the ground. Um, that's a very Jewish sample move. I'm, <laughs> I'm de developing uh, a system that I can set up and I'm creating uh, polycultures so that I eventually can have a, a permaculture design uh, play in place that people can come and observe and I can have workshops. I'm trying to lease the property next to me after the yard of my neighbors so that I can start putting a nursery in. Um, I have the greenhouse, which I'm trying to decide what we're actually going to do with that. Well, that's a nice thing, though. You already have some infrastructure now. Yeah, I have the infrastructure. So yeah. um, I just have to decide which way I want to go. I do want to copy what Jerome, what's his last? Uh, Austin, Austin Kowski. Austin Kowski. Oh, He's done with Paston, with his passive greenhouse. I plan on doing a system similar to his that's in the, the greenhouse. Climate battery. Yeah, climate battery. Yeah, I think Steve Whitman has one of those, too. It's basically uh, Curtis Stone's greenhouse design yeah. as well, his new greenhouse. Absolutely. Yeah, so so I'm, I'm basically working on that. I've reached out to 
um, time banking in Hartford, where I'm going to be offering services through the time bank, which is basically a kind of bartering system that you barter, barter with time. Yeah, we have a time bank here. Yeah, and I'm going to be doing that, and I already have a couple that want to help me uh, do some clearing of land and because I have walnut trees, which actually are in the wrong place that I have to take down because they're shading the area that I want to create um, an orchard. And so I have those people coming because it's frankly working by yourself is a lot of work. It definitely is. When you get two people, you can get to do the work of three or four. Yeah. Uh, times, I should say, if you're by yourself. So that's where we're working. Um, I'm looking at aquaponics, though. I'm not really excited about it as much as I was in the beginning because of the input. Yeah. And, and frankly, that's a lot of light. You grow inside and not outside. A lot of people are doing great things with it. I just don't see it as a viable option I'm for still, myself right now. I'm still skeptical. I think it's it's fun to do in retirement. Um, but I think if you're actually looking for... I just, I don't think it's, uh, because of the inputs, I don't think it's, it's sustainable. Like I, I, I think if we get photovoltaics to the point where electricity is pretty much free, it won't be an issue. Yeah. Yeah. But still, I still have my questions. That's another subject. That's another rabbit hole for another two hour podcast. That's that's another. That's for the next time Paul comes in town. Um, so Paul, if people want to reach out to you or, or pick your brain about, orchids or mineral uh, mining or any of the other cool stuff that you're into that we didn't even cover. We haven't got, I don't have a web page. Paul Cousin, it's on Facebook. Yep. Paul um, Cousin. Um, could, just like Cousin, get me, get, right? Actually get through to me through the Connecticut Herb Association. Boom. There we go. You know, so, put, a, put a comment on there. Uh, can I get in touch with Paul? And somebody will know what you're talking about. Because uh, my sister-in-law is is the vice president or the president, depending on what year it is. Or get through Paul. Get get ahead of get a hold of Paul through me too. Yeah, get through through Drew or Rich or Rich or Rich. You know? Yeah, we're more than happy to uh, introduce you guys to Paul. Paul's a great guy. I've had a blast. Paul, thank you so much for coming on the show. And uh, I want to give a shout out to the Yale Food Forest Garden that we're we're creating down there outside the School of Forestry. Oh yeah, um, Emily Figman is is who is taking care of that. Is the intern? She's a graduate student there, and I actually went out to see her anniversary slash second wedding. Not sure, but we had a great time. That's why I was on Steamboat Springs, and we had a great time. And uh, I want to give you a shout out. Anybody who wants to go down? It's in the Connecticut area. Wants to help out and volunteer at the Yale uh, Forest Garden. Just get a hold of myself. And I can give you the information. That's awesome. Well, guys, thanks again for tuning in. And uh, you guys are also, I want to throw this in. If you're interested in learning more about pawpaw propagation, check out Grant Schultz's free course at Versaland uh, TV. There is a link in the show notes. 